we're coming to you from the future. This is a good, what, like two weeks, maybe, after we recorded Omen? I don't remember when we recorded the Omen. A week ago? It's just been a week. Well, time has lost its meaning. So, this is a um, kind of commemorative gift to really memorialize a lost opportunity for something that we were going to do together during our vacation in Los Angeles this September, which of course did not come to pass. And it's also to congratulate Amelia as we reach our new business venture together. And also uh, Todd to congratulate her for crossing the finish line soon of her degree. Oh, God. Okay. So this gift means a lot of things. It means a lot to me. I've chosen an item that I think will mean a lot to you, too. You, too, too. Okay. I'm very worried. I'm yes, they have not opened these. They have not opened these. We all have matching ones. Mine arrived first. And then theirs arrived very slowly in Australia, I might add. Very slowly. Your National Post is a joke. So... Uh, yeah. Well, I can get into why that is at the moment but also processing is really delayed here because we've been in lockdown for 12 weeks that's no excuse yeah well yeah this came what last week and it's been sitting here radiating sort of malevolent energy ever since then so i'm very keen to open it okay i want you guys to do it at the same time okay okay Okay. five four three two one go I see letters and I'm so fucking scared. Okay, what is this? Oh, well, I see the word pissing. <laughs> I heart pissing on Reagan's grave. Oh my god. Well, it's a true sentiment. Wear it to the mall when it reopens. Wear it to the bowling alley. Wear it to school. Finishing my degree. Wear it to school. Wear it to, school. <laughs> to wear it to your graduation ceremony. Hi, Penny. Penny just came in to see it. Oh, Penny loves pissing too. Penny does love pissing. You love pissing, huh? She's smelling it. I like that it's sort of in this dark gray that you can't really see it from a distance. You can just see the heart. Well, yeah, I thought a lot about this. I thought about the color and I really like the idea that you have to get close to be able to read it, you know? Like a like a license plate frame. Breaking some social distancing rules just to read my cool shirt. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Reagan is actually laid to rest well he's in hell but he's laid to rest on site um at the the reagan library which was what one of the activities we were going to do was go to the reagan library but now we can't we simply can't so that's a little piece of the reagan library to keep with you uh do we all have to wear this when we actually finally do meet up we're wearing this to disneyland (laughs) i i think yeah i think we have to wear it somewhere i don't know if we should wear it to the reagan library i feel like that's a good way to get barred entrance um (laughs) but (laughs) we can wear it anywhere we could wear it to, like, a, a dive bar in Malibu. I really like how pissing is sort of, like, centered on the shirt. So yeah, if you're to read it, you know, at first that you're just going to kind of register, I love pissing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. But that is an added bonus, yes. <laughs> it could be discriminatory to people with, like, incontinence issues. I also like how the heart on this is kind of, like, a bit wonky. It has a lot of charm. Pissing? Are you seeing how one half of the heart is, like, a bit thinner than the other half? It's got character. <laughs> that might be a printing issue, actually, but if it, if it isn't... <laughs> well, I'll say this for the printing, because this my, is my area of expertise. The registration on it is shit, because it has sort of a, a white halo around every single letter, because the uh, plates have um, 
been misaligned. Well, that's how you can tell but the difference. But it just adds to the charm. It's really... Yes, you can tell the difference between really. the, the original, right, and then the knockoffs that people are going to make when you start a new fashion trend in Melbourne. You're going to see that everywhere. But if you, you've got the real, the white cast. <laughs> this is insane. I had so many thoughts about what this could be, and this is just not even in the realm of what I thought it was going to be. This never crossed I was, my mind. I was really worried you guys were going to figure out it was a Reagan thing, because I'd mentioned <laughs> that it had to do with the election, and um, that I thought... I don't I even thought, remember you saying that. I thought it was going to be something Ronk-related, but... Yeah, I did kind of lean into that a little. Well, it is kind of Ronk-related, because Grave, you know, it's... it's I thought you were going to say Ronk love pissing. And probably. He, he did, I guess. <laughs> he did, I guess. I will say, too, this is going to be uh, really appropriate to wear on Election Day, which is coming up. Yes. Yes. That is true. This can be your garb for Tuesday. Perfect. We are recording this on Sunday, the Sunday before um, Election Day. So by the time you hear this again, the polls will be closed. And if you didn't drop off your ballot, you fucked up. So... Well, well, thank you, Candace. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Gift. Thank you for this wonderful gift. You're welcome. It's not... It's not the experience of it's not Disneyland. It's not laughing at the way that Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s name is kind of just haphazardly attached <laughs> to his father's grave. It's not any of those things, but um, but it's something. And It'll so, us over until we can finally until 2022, when Australians are finally allowed to re-enter the United States. Well, it's perfect. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. <sighs> <laughs> and we match. I hope they fit. Um, mine, they actually sent me the wrong one. So they sent me a hoodie. And um, the sweatshirt that I ordered is supposed to be like oversized, right? But the hoodie that they sent me is like not. So it's just straight up like a huge hoodie. <laughs> like it fits my brother who is like 280 pounds, six foot four. Like my brother can fit in it. Well, that's um, how you can tell you're the boss. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest hoodie. Biggest hoodie Well, this contest. one looks like it'd fit. I mean, the arms are a little bit long, but I mean, now I can just have my sort of Starbucks autumn girl aesthetic with my sweater paws in my I love pissing on Reagan's grave shirt. I can't wait to explain this to my family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here, girls come to see it. Don't step on my keyboard, you fucking demon. Yes, he's knocking over everything on my desk. Okay, well, I will put this at the top of the episode. Okay, good. And I think when the episode goes up, we're going to have to post some kind of, you know, faceless picture situation so everyone can yeah. share in the experience. Especially with mine, which is the size of a circus tent. So that'll be good. And now our feature presentation. Now, do I have your full attention? You. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings! Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? I don't know if I want to be buried. I kind of debate that. I think it would be cool, like, on the surface, but also because, like, I would like to come back and wreak havoc, um, like, in Return of the Living Dead. 
But at the same time, I feel like if you're not cremated, it's very easy to end up um, either grave robbed or, or having, you know, some college students play hacky sack with your kidneys. I mean, it's very likely that a development will be built over the top of you, a la Poltergeist, if you're buried. That's very true. That is very true. And I was reading about that um, a while back. And because the United States does not have as developed interment law as other countries, um, it's it's fairly easy to build whatever you want over a graveyard. I mean, in England, they just do it. They don't have enough room, so they just they pull up the headstones and then just build stuff right on top. Yeah, like in in Highgate Cemetery, remember? Like even by the 19th century, they would have like six bodies stacked on top of each other, having run out of uh, grave space. That's gross. It's a party. Yeah, but what if you're the guy on the bottom, you know, and so then everybody else breaks out of their coffins and you're just kind of stuck? I mean, you're dead, so I don't think it really matters to you. Well, it, it would still be frustrating if you were zombified. I think if I was d- already dead and then came back as a zombie, I'd be annoyed because it's like, man, you're interrupting my eternal rest for this. I just stay in the grave. No, I can't be bothered. Then you'd be like awake and like aware in the dark. How aware are zombies really, though? Well, they know they want to eat brains and they know that if they stay in the grave, they're not getting the brains. Um, the election is coming up. This episode is going to go up election day. Hopefully Mitch McConnell is dead by then. Guess we'll see. Will this come out while they're counting? I have no idea what time this podcast comes out. 6 p.m. Mountain. 6 p.m. Mountain, which is 5 p.m. Pacific. That means nothing to me. Well, I'm doing the math. (laughs) And so that would be 8 p.m. in the East, which is when polls close. Maybe by the end of this podcast. (laughs) The child is dead. He breathed for a moment. Then he breathed no more. The child is dead. Welcome to What's in the Basket. It's a podcast. My name is Candice, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amelia. Hello. And Todd. Hi. You're going to need to ease up on that paper shuffling. Oh, I am sorry. I, yeah, I, I, I printed out my notes like it's, you know, like I'm in goddamn... Um, it's right in the mic. It's like you're, like, scrunching it up or, like... It's turning it into binoculars or something. It's, it's like. terrible. I, I, I feel like I'm that Stasi um, operative in the lives of others who's spying on people and like keeping notes on their activities against the communist state. This is what it feels like right now. It's it's horrible. But I can't read off a screen. I'm already functionally illiterate, but when you add the screen into it, it's just it's it's hot garbage. Um, so we are continuing our cursed film spooky season slate with Probably the least cursed of all the cursed films, if we're being honest here. It's The Omen. And, you know, well, what can you say about The Omen? It's a movie. It's from 1976. It's got Gregory Peck in it. And it's about Gregory Peck uh, trying to stab a baby. The plot of The Omen is familiar to most people, probably. Um, Even if you haven't seen the movie, you know what it's about. But we're going to do a quick rundown anyway, just for context as we move throughout the episode. And if you haven't seen it, you know, buckle in. (laughs) We open on Gregory Peck, an American diplomat in Rome, rushing to the hospital where his wife, Lee Remick, is having a baby. Sadly, the baby dies, which Peck fears will break Remick's heart. The head priest, because this hospital is a Pope Paul VI joint, shows Peck a newborn boy whose own mother did not survive childbirth. If I may suggest, it even resembles your wife need never know. Would be a blessing to her. 
and pull the child. He convinced his pack to raise the son as his own, calling it a blessing for both Remick and the child. The baby, whom they named Damien, has an idyllic childhood montage, blah, 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 blah. Peck is appointed ambassador to Great Britain, and the family relocates to London. And this is where things start to get a little weird. Damien's nanny commits suicide during his birthday party, frightening several clowns in the process. There's, like, a reaction shot of a bunch of clowns getting scared. Yeah, they were really (laughs) shell-shocked by that. It's just like it's just like foxhole and warfare. Clowns. And they're clowns. They, nothing nothing shocks a clown. They're very emotionally resilient. strange priest shows up in Greg's office demanding that he drink the blood of Christ lest he be damned, etc., etc. Weird. Greg hasn't thrown out. Forgive me, Father. Uh, didn't I understand that you have a matter of some uh, urgent personal business? You must take communion. Drink the blood of Christ and eat his flesh. For only if he is within you can you defeat the son of the devil. I see. He's killed once. He'll kill again. He'll kill until everything that's yours is his. Father, would you Only mind through waiting? Christ can you fight him. Accept the Lord Jesus. Drink his blood. Uh, a new menacing nanny appears, as is a Rottweiler that takes to guarding Damien's nursery. Greg finally agrees to meet with the priest, who warns him that his toddler is bent on world domination. The priest gets turned into shish kebab by some sort <laughs> of falling spear thing in a church cemetery. Very cool shot. All the deaths in this are very cool. Yes. I'll just say that. Yes, I have to say, I think it's some of the more elaborate special effects in a horror film of of this era. And I think it's the better for the fact that clearly they invested money in it. Uh, Lee Remick falls over a second floor railing and onto the ground below, narrowly escaping death, but losing a pregnancy in the process, as was predicted by the priest. A press photographer played by David Warner gets in on the action, accompanying Greg to Rome where they try and fail to source any information on Damien's birth or biological parentage. The hospital's records and maternity wing have both been consumed by fire, but the head priest, who arranged the secret adoption, is still alive and looking like Terry Jones in Life of Brian. (laughs) The head priest, who seems pretty repentant about the whole thing, uh, you know, unleashing the Antichrist on Earth, sends them to a cemetery in an Italian village named for Armageddon. A very famous and very well-done sequence ensues, wherein Peck opens the grave of Damien's birth mother, quote unquote, and finds an animal skeleton. He then pries open the infant-sized grave next to it, hoping against hope that it too will contain animal remains and that perhaps the son he thought had died that night in the hospital is still alive somewhere, but it isn't. The baby's dead. The priest murdered a baby. The other one. Now, let's get out of here. If it's an animal too, then maybe my child... Is alive somewhere. Oh, 
How do we know it was the priest? I was thinking this while watching it. I'm like, what if it was baby on baby crime? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's really, I was thinking that the fact that he murdered the baby is the reason why he had that whole, like, Terry Jones, like, leprosy thing going on. But baby on baby crime is very appealing. You know, Damien is the son of the devil, so. Like... He is the Antichrist. I like the fact that we never really see Damien kill anyone, even in The Omen 2, which we will discuss. It's it's a very bloodless affair with Damien, as, as you might expect, because, again, he's orchestrating all these dark forces. He doesn't actually need to get his hands dirty, but I think you're right. Maybe he did get his hands dirty in that particular situation, because that's funny. <laughs> and I was going to say that judging by the size of the skeleton they used, the baby, you know, Peck's baby, would, like, have been taller than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Because this would be a newborn... And it's obviously like it's like a I don't know a toddler or a very short. It's individual. quite a big skeleton, yeah. As far as baby skeletons, go. as far as baby, my my vast knowledge of baby skeletons would indicate to me. Yeah, I'm not really sure what's up with that. Uh, I was kind of thinking it, it reminded me a little bit of the killer in Don't Look Now. Like I think that would be like the size of that skeleton. Spoiler alert: If you've never seen Don't Look Now. Don't watch that movie, though, because you get an eyeful of Donald Sutherland's naked flesh. And no one wants that. I can't condone that. So Peck and Warner get chased by dogs in the cemetery. And then Leoramic gets pushed out a window. Surprise, surprise. Uh, rest in peace. So now they head to Israel, where they are to meet a mysterious man named Bugenhagen. Bugenhagen, which is, I think, a really good name, tells Peck to search Damien for the Mark of the Beast, 666, and if present, which it will be since Damien is clearly demonic, to stab him to death in a church with this cool set of hand-carved baby stabbers. And Craig's like, oh, come on, he's just a kid. <laughs> like, again, just ignoring all the plot development to this point. And Bugenhagen's like, if you really thought he was a human child, you wouldn't be here, and I would get to keep my baby stabbers. So are you going to take him or not? And then uh, Peck leaves the workshop, and he tells David Warner he's not going to stab that baby. And then he, in one of the most underwhelming acts of athleticism ever committed to celluloid, yeets the bundle of baby stabbers across the alleyway. You remember this. Of course. Yeah, it doesn't go very far. He tosses it like, I would throw a ball. <laughs> It's it's just sad. It's it's pathetic. Look, I'm not just some bystander. I was the one that found him. I'm the one that's supposed to kill him. These are knives. He wants me to stab him. He wants me to murder a child. It's not a child. How can he know that? Maybe he's wrong. It's insane. I won't have anything to do with murdering a little boy. He's not responsible. I won't do it. If you don't do it, I will. So David Warner runs over, like, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. Fuck this kid. And he is promptly decapitated by a sheet of glass that slides off the back of the truck. Another absolutely kick-ass death in this movie. Yes. One of the most celebrated deaths in all of celluloid. At last persuaded that something not quite on the level is going on here, because he's an idiot, Greg goes back to London, dispatches the nanny from hell, and takes Damien to church so he can get the whole thing over with. He's too slow, though. When he raises a baby stabber, the police are entering the church. The film ends at a funeral where two caskets are being laid to rest. And the final shot is a man, addressed as Mr. President, holding hands with a very short individual. He turns to the camera and it's Todd. It's not oh, Todd. fuck you. It's Damien. <laughs> it should have been Todd, though. So that's the plot of The Omen. If you've never seen it, though, that's basically it. There's there's other parts, but nothing terribly relevant. Um, the franchise doesn't really get meaty until The Omen 2, which is our personal favorite of The Omen movies. Of the two that I've seen, of the yes. two that Of the two that we've seen. I've never seen the Sam Neill <laughs> Omen. 
And I, I saw the, the Leaf Schreiber omen many years ago, and I thought it was oh, I've dog seen that. shit. That's like, the Leaf Schreiber one is just a shot-for-shot shot remake of the original omen. Yeah. It's like, why bother? And it's like, quite frankly, you know, this isn't the bridge on the river quiet. Like, shot for, like, you could you could have made some Mixed deviations it up a there. Bit. Yeah. It's not exactly some sort of sacred, you know, we talked about this in the last episode, the idea of, well, Cape Fear, another remake, God, remaking Poltergeist or remaking Cape Fear. Like, why would you do that? But it's like, the element I feel like you could remake and not fuck it up. But some people are losers. There's one thing I learned from my president. Some people are losers. So the omen was directed by Richard Donner, who is an unconventional director, but not for the reasons you might expect. Donner, the son of a Bronx furniture manufacturer, started out as an actor but that didn't last long. In the spring of 1951, while shooting the CBS anthology series Somerset Mom TV Theater, Donner, who was playing a bit part in of human bondage, got into an argument with the show's director, Martin Ritt. According to Donner, I thought I was going to be fired. Marty, a wonderful man, told me I couldn't take direction and should be a director. I said, easier said than done. He said, assist me. Ritt is a really interesting guy who, of course, ended up blacklisted like virtually everyone who's interesting in Hollywood. Um, and we should do one of his movies sometime. Donner followed Ritt's advice and by 1959 had landed a job directing the cast of I Love Lucy in a commercial for Westinghouse Appliances. Oh, yeah. Donner, <laughs> yeah. Sweet the, the, com- the commercial's online. I'll put it in the show notes. It's kind of brutal. What do you know about 1949? 1949? Well, it was 10 years ago. <laughs> what do you want to know? Well, Big Mouth Ethel says that Betty Furness knows more about 1949 than anyone. And I'll be darned if I'm going to have any woman get the best of me. Hey, Betty, how come you know so much about 1949? Well, I've been studying, Lucy. Prices, mostly. Most things have gone up since then, but not Westinghouse appliances. Hey, Lucy. Yeah? Remember this? I'll say. It barely held two ice cube trays. Well, small as it was, in 1949, it was a bargain at $329.95. But today... You can buy this 13-cubic-foot, two-door 1959 Westinghouse refrigerator with the exclusive cold injector system and frost-free automatic defrosting, plus this huge separate home freezer, all for 1949 prices or less. Donner said of working with Lucy, Ricky, Fred, and Ethel, it was bizarre, it was frightening, it was insane. There was a lot of drinking before lunch. God rest them, they are a whole different style of actors. <laughs> Uh, he survived the experience and ended up meeting a Desilu executive who's, uh, who's saying, quote, if you can work with that crowd, you can work with anyone, offered Donner a gig directing Steve McQueen in the CBS Western program Wanted Dead or Alive. That was how he proved his mettle in the industry, by working with a bunch of old drunks. I mean, it's 80% of the job. Look at, you know, imagine being a director on one of those Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And, like, half the day is just spent sending, you know, a gopher out to make sure Johnny Depp is awake. That's sad. He shouldn't be working anymore. Anyone who spends $30,000 a month on wine and then accuses their, like, business managers of, like, siphoning money from them, it's like, you siphoned money from yourself, and you siphoned the future from your liver. (laughs) From there, uh, Donner's television resume, The Twilight Zone, including the classic Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, The Man from Uncle, Gilligan's Island, Perry Mason, Get Smart, The Banana Splits, reads like a greatest hits mix of 60s pop culture. His film resume, on the other hand, reads like a brief but excruciating list of crimes punishable by lethal injection in the state of Texas. <laughs> so there's Salt and Pepper, which... Have you guys ever seen Salt and Pepper? No. It it almost makes you wish that Peter Lawford was deader than he is now. Wow, I like the way you walk. Sammy Davis Jr. Like the way you talk. Now stop! 
Go! Peter Lawford as salt and pepper. I'm pepper and salt. You and me against all of them guys? Well, you're looking at a very unhappy African. Salt and pepper. Heroes who held the fate of the world in their hands and dropped it. Like Peter Lawford should like die every again. Every Peter Lawford film makes me feel that way, though. The craziest thing I've ever heard about Peter Lawford. This was, I think, in Elizabeth Taylor biography, and it's so crazy. I'm sure I'm like misremembering it, but they were like in rehab, like together or something. And then one day he was just like, "Fuck this, I'm out," and then just had a helicopter come pick him up. <laughs> So again, I'm sure working with Peter Lawford, it's like working with Lucy and Desi and Vivian Vance. You know what I mean? It's 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 helping you there. Um, oh, there's also the next movie he directed was London Affair, a Charles Bronson sex comedy. Oh no! Don't oh. want to hear that phrase. With the promising tagline, get ready for this. She's almost sixteen. Oh he's no! He's almost forty. It's the funniest uh, love affair that ever jumped the generation gap. Oh, no. I someone went to jail for that. Uh, London Affair was also released as Twinkie or Lola, depending oh, no. on the market. <laughs> I like Twinkie. I would have called the movie Twinkie because her her name is Twinkie. The 16-year-old free spirit, her name is Twinkie. That's like breezy, but even worse. So I was curious how that movie ever got made. And it turns out that the screenwriter, Norman Thaddeus Vane, was a penthouse contributor who based the film on his own experiences as a middle-aged man married to a child. Uh, this is all terrible. No. But according to our co-host Wikipedia... His directing career went south, and the Chicago Sun-Times critic Ernest Tucker described Vane's 1986 disco thriller, Club Life, as like watching Dante's Inferno written on an Etch-A-Sketch. And <laughs> I was, of course, intrigued by this. So I googled, and Club Life's IMDb reviews are studded with inspiring phrases such as awesome glow-in-the-dark nunchucks, wholly depressing, a handsome professional dirt bike racer, I bought this film at a flea market for a dollar. Curtis definitely has the best lines, including this gem. You play stickball with me and I'll screw with your nuts. After watching this, there is not much to be proud of in life. And the lesbian nightclub and a waterbed filled with goldfish are not something you see every day. Tony Curtis also apparently ad-libs an entire monologue at a funeral. Tony, Tony Curtis is in this. Tony Curtis is the one who has the line, you play stickball with me and I'll screw with your nuts. So imagine that in a Tony Curtis voice. So what you're saying is that we have to watch this movie immediately. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, we're uh, watching it. So look forward to the episode on Club Life. Anyway, so that's the state of Richard Donner's directing career before The Omen came along. I wouldn't have wanted to be him. Gregory Peck, at the time of The Omen, had not had a box office hit since 1966 with the Stanley Donen spy caper Arabesque. And that obviously is <laughs> quite a stretch of bad luck for um, any major star. Uh, characteristic of this phase in his career is the 1974 Western Billy Two Hats, co-starring Desi Arnaz Jr. Gregory Peck. Desi Arnaz Jr. Jack Warden. great cast, a great land, a great adventure. Add Billy Two Hats to the great westerns of all time. Illustrious. We can't escape the Arnes family on this podcast. Uh, John Griggs, in his book on Peck, describes it as an American western 
written by a Scotsman, produced and directed by Canadians, and photographed entirely on location in Israel, that to his mind capped a string of failures for Gregory Peck. Harsh words, but not as harsh as Greg's own. I've decided now not to do any more of those. I get offered quite a few scripts, but to be quite honest about it, I haven't had an outstanding script offered to me for a couple of years. And to go on doing a succession of Billy Two Hats would be embarrassing. I don't like it when pictures go out and get lost and no one goes to see them because you put just as much effort into it. You spend all those days and nights, get up early and learn your lines and study your character. And you work just as hard or harder on a bad script than you do on a good one. So I'm just not going to do any more of those. I'll retire first. I'll go to the south of France or take up charity work rather than do a series of mediocre pictures. That interview took place in November of 1974. A few months later, Greg's agent, George Chasen, sent him a script entitled The Antichrist. It's hard to imagine someone other than Greg in this movie. I mean, I know in the second one, it's William Holden, but I, it's just not. You know, and William Holden was offered this movie and turned it yeah, down. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, I think, it wasn't until the success of this one that he was like, okay, maybe I can get on board. I think Bill would have been good in this movie because, see, the thing about Gregory Peck is that Gregory Peck is such a sane, rational man that it's... Yeah, but I think that's why it plays, like, really well when he's like, well, no, I'm not going to stab a baby despite all this evidence telling me that my baby is the Antichrist. Because it, it just feels like when Greg is in that mindset where he's like, well, he can't be, he can't be, I can't possibly stab a baby. It's a lot more believable. Whereas in the second one with William Holden, it's just not as strong. His denial is not as believable. But that's probably because well, William Holden's Well, I think part of that person. is because Holden would have stabbed a baby. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say it's, Given it's the opportunity. almost kind of hard to believe that Bill Holden would turn down the opportunity to, like, to stab a demon baby. <laughs> I, yeah. That's why I think when it made this movie like really campy and therefore like more interesting and fun would have been William Holden stabbing a baby. Because it, it's just... He's just such a, what a bizarre star persona. Like of all the people, I, I I can never wrap my mind around William Holden because there's something, you know, there's that, that beautiful, you know, all American football hero look that he has to him. And yet there's that roiling undercurrent of just abject insanity. It's beautiful. Untreated mental illness is beautiful. Self-medicating with alcohol <laughs> makes you a better actor. I'm endorsing that now. Kids these days, they get pills. They don't go out and start chugging mouthwash before they go out on the set, you know, like William Holden did. Anyway, back to back to back to reality. The Antichrist was not born on a studio lot. Actually, it was an advertising executive named Robert Munger, who had an idea that he thought would make a swell little movie akin to previous Satan-tinged hits like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. Munger was having lunch with producer Harvey Bernhard when he mentioned the concept. Bernhard agreed that it had commercial potential and hired screenwriter David Seltzer to flesh out Munger's idea. Warner Brothers, who has Todd illustrated in her excellent Exorcist ep, had made a metric fuck-ton of money thanks to the devil already, bought the option, and let it lapse. After seven months without word from Warner's, the script arrived on Richard Donner's desk. Donner contacted Alan Ladd Jr., who had outdone his famous father by becoming production chief at 20th Century Fox, although I'm not sure if he broke Alan Sr.'s own spooky curse. The curse of being a petite little Madeline cookie of a man. Well, no, the thing about Alan Ladd's sons is that they don't look anything fucking like him and, in fact, look like hobbits. And we, when we watched um, Deathline, which has David Ladd, I, I, I was fairly comfortable making the suggestion that perhaps... It's not a lad at all. Yeah, perhaps Daddy got cucked. Dad, <laughs> Daddy got cucked, starring Alan Ladd. <laughs> Just like Father Goose with Cary Grant, but it plays on Skinamax. Um, 
That's a gross concept. I'm, I'm going to drop that now. I, normally I would pursue that, but I have so many notes to go through. So Donner asked Ladd to read the screenplay over the weekend because the Warner Brothers option would expire the following Monday. Ladd called Donner back at midnight on Sunday and gave him the green light. President Lyndon B. Johnson had once told Veronique Peck that had he decided to run for another term, he would have made her husband ambassador to Ireland. What Greg's okay. qualifications are for that, I'm not sure. His father was born in Ireland, but apart from that, I don't, I don't really know. You know. I mean, I think at that point, LBJ was just not of sound mind. Yeah, they were dancing at at some event, and he was like, "We have something in common." And she was like, oh, "Mr. President, because <laughs> she's French, and so that is, we have something in common." And he's like, "We both love Gregory." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay." You two and everyone else on the planet who's ever seen a Hollywood film, but go off, I guess. Um, maybe he loved him in a special way. I, I don't know. So Greg was naturally intrigued by the screenplay, having almost been an ambassador, maybe, kind of. He later recalled, I remember reading it and thinking, this is going to be a commercial success, but I didn't know it would be that kind of blockbuster. I really thought it would be a good paperback thriller. The success is almost obscene. Lee Remick, who signed on to play the ill-fated Catherine Thorne, was less enamored of the project. While promoting another horror film, 1978's The Medusa Touch, Remick said, There's very little of the occult in this film. It's really more about people. After crashing to my death through that window, I have been surprised to learn that The Omen became the number one box office hit last year. I have never been interested in the occult. When I went to see The Exorcist, I didn't look at two-thirds of it because I'm very squeamish. But I decided to do The Omen because the good people involved, like Richard Donner and Gregory Peck. But I think it's part of a phase that will die out, I hope. On the first day of filming, Peck, ever the gentleman, sent her two dozen roses bearing a card that read, At last we get to work together on such a, do a jolly little subject. Harvey Stevens was cast as Damien after an audition in which Richard Donner requested, quote, When I say action, I want you to fight me as hard as you can and quit when I yell cut. Stevens did not, in fact, obey these directions and continued kicking Donner in the testicles well after the director had yelled <laughs> cut. Of Stevens, Donner said, He was a good kid, but I would not want him to be my own. Oh, brutal. Brutal. Brutal rejection. Top 10 anime betrayals. The script underwent changes both internally and externally motivated. There was some hesitation about whether the film's demonic forces were to be depicted as real. Gregory Peck was skeptical that a man like Thorne would be so suggestible as to adopt a child sight unseen, let alone hide the adoption from his wife or, you know, try to kill it. Donner, like Peck, preferred the reading that Robert Thorne was an intelligent, logical man deranged by panic and loss. David Seltzer was not initially on Team Nervous Breakdown, having written multiple sequences involving visible, literal devils, but eventually came around. And I, th I think this is one of the movies that really benefits from that. I think this is a really good decision since uh, it distinguishes the movie from more overt exorcist knockoffs. Yeah, I think that the strength is definitely in how much of the religious context it chooses not to show. And it's more the, the implications. And like the lore that they do import, you know, the son of the jackal and all of that it's done in a light touch way but it still like helps bring a sense of like ominous foreboding like oh my god this child is evil and i think it's a lot more effective than you know the child sitting on the devil's knee yeah imagery and i i think what's unseen is always scarier than what is seen and i think that because they're not focusing on depicting these demons I think the actual human deaths that occur in the film are therefore like much more compelling and really shocking because how are you, you know, 
yeah, David Warner gets decapitated, but how are you going to compete with, you know, some sort of, like, eight-foot-tall flying devil, you know? That it really would change the tenor of the film. Yeah. So, at this point, some bad news arrived in the form of an overt exorcist knockoff. There was a 1974 Italian horror film entitled, I'm going to fucking butcher this, I don't speak Italian, Lanti Cristo, Lanti Cristo, Lanti Cristo. Um, Lonte Cristo, oh, fuck if I know, featuring Mel Ferrer, Arthur Kennedy, and Alita Valley. The name of the project at hand would have to be changed, and in a truly what's-in-the-basket style twist, they settled on The Birthmark. <laughs> no. Yes. The, That's... The Birthmark was the working title of this film. Um, well, I'm glad they changed it. Jesus. Yeah. Eventually, The Omen won out. Thank God. The Birthmark kind of sounds like some terrible, like, coming-of-age drama. Like, Joshua is a normal kid. Except he's got that fucked-up birthmark. And then it's like, <laughs> we are young. And then it's got, like, a girl who's way out of his league and also played by an actress who's, like, 27 years old. And they're, like, kissing at a party or something. And then it's like... Whoa, I lost my virginity even though I got a birthmark. By the way, I realized that I have a large mole on my face. Where? <laughs> what? Where's that mole? <laughs> I didn't see one. I also realized the irony that I am myself a mole. No one would make that connection. Anyway, well done, old chap. Jolly good work. Yes, nice to mole you. Meet you. Nice to meet you, Mole. Don't say Mole. Stop. I said Mole. Stop. We should write that script. Might be able to make some money. Well, I mean, I think now that all coming-of-age films... I mean, one, we're full to the brim of coming-of-age films. We don't need any more of those. But definitely now there needs to be a shift in coming-of-age films to tell children that actually, no, you don't reach self-actualization by partying because of the coronavirus. <laughs> so You reach self-actualization alone in your room the way monks did for many hundreds of years. And look how great they did. Exactly. They had really nice handwriting. So. <laughs> they made some good wine, you know? They solved mysteries <laughs> once, like in the name of the rose. Yeah. Got killed by some Vikings. I mean... Martin Luther had mildew all over his bed and he started a reformation, so... Exactly. I feel like Martin Luther, didn't he also have beatings while he was on the toilet? He had people beat him while he was on the toilet? No, so had meetings. <laughs> oh, meetings. I heard meetings too. <laughs> Just like, was it Max Sennett or Hal Roach? Or did I ever manage to figure out which one that was? I one think of the it was Max Sennett. It was Max Sennett. The exact same thing, had meetings on the can. Good for him. So after a hectic pre-production process in which the creative team plotted out an elaborate web of alternate plans in case something went wrong, which wasn't unlikely considering that filming would involve a great deal of location work, Donner, Peck, and all the rest found themselves at London's Shepperton Studios. They had 11 weeks and $2.5 million. It was time to do the impossible. $2.5 million, by the way, was not a large budget. I feel like it's important to note. That's really on the edge at this point in time. By comparison, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, the Poseidon Adventure sequel cost Fox like $11 million. Making the Omen was not an easy process for Richard Donner. This was, after all, his first major film, with apologies to Salt and Pepper. Uh, Donner is known for preferring a congenial, relaxed production environment and believes that many of the directors he worked under early in his career more or less shot themselves at the foot by acting like what he called very talented tyrants. This is what makes him an unconventional director, uh, by the way, because most directors are assholes. Donner's ideal atmosphere did not materialize on the set of The Omen, however. He recalled, The Omen was a phenomenal break for me, but while I was making it, I hated it and swore I was going to go back to television. Nothing's ever tight when you start a film. 
You're starting too early, even if you prepared for two years. You get laryngitis. You can't say action. Your dailies aren't tight. The actors you cast are wrong. You have the wrong cameraman. I mean, everything is wrong. But once you've done a few films and know when the momentum is really starting to pick up, you start to feel a little confident. On The Omen, I never felt it. Every frame of that film was a challenge. I came out of the first assemblage with the same editor I'm working with now, Stuart Baird, and I said, it's a dismal failure. Then we sat down in the cutting room day in and day out, and the picture started to take shape. My confidence began to grow during that editorial process. As the process started to become a comfortable one, I still had my insecurities, but I knew there would come a time within the film when I hit my pace and everything would start to be tight. In retrospect, I went back and looked at the omen and realized where I had found my ace. Gregory Peck gave it to me at a certain point. We had a fairly rough scene to do, and we were at each other's throats. Mr. Peck didn't believe in what I wanted, did it reluctantly, and voiced that reluctance to everybody. But the next day in dailies, he came over, whispered in my ear, and said, it couldn't have been better. That's how it feels recording this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it does feel a lot like how this podcast feels, except without the um, financial reward. Yeah, I wish someone would give me $2.5 million in 1975 money. So one thing that unsurprisingly recurs in the experience of sifting through information on the Omen curse is the competing narratives. And sometimes they're not even competing. They're rather, they're like straight up self-contradictory narratives. Richard Donner has compared the litany of disasters occurring behind the scenes of this, air quotes, cursed film to how on the set of a comedy there will be funny mishaps and on the set of a romance people will always be splitting up and getting together and falling in love. Wacky hijinks all around. The idea being that the subject matter is just on your mind and, you know, it's it's omnipresent. You wake up with it, you work with it, and at night you dream about it. Like how I go to Target and I look at baby onesies and I think that Ronk would look adorable in them. <laughs> Especially if they have frogs on them. Or Elmo, perhaps. Um, was Ronk ever on Sesame Street? I feel like I would know if he had been. Yeah, that's sad. Been, <laughs> Ronk might have been a Muppet Babies magazine. Not that sad, but I'm saying it's sad that Ronk was never on Sesame Street. <laughs> it's also sad that you didn't know that. But, uh, maybe he was in Muppet Babies magazine or whatever the hell. And we never... What was that called? Muppets, Mag- Muppets, Muppets magazine. Muppets magazine. Oh, no. Fuck, you know what he was in? What? Oh, yeah. Muppet movie. <laughs> right. Shit. When there's someone by your side to sing, life's a happy song. When there's someone by your side to sing, life's a happy song. When there's someone by your side to sing along. I completely blanked on that. And that's like one of his yeah, last. Yeah, that was like one of his last actual screen appearances. Yeah. And he was also on The Muppet Show and Muppet Babies. So. Whoa, okay. Well, there you go. That's a lot. He certainly lot. picked a side, didn't he? <laughs> We gotta find the Muppet Show Ronk episode. We should just do a whole episode on Ronk's TV appearances because there's a lot. Oh, okay. So so here's narrative one. Donner ultimately attributes the curse to the scariest entity of all, the 20th Century Fox Publicity Department. According to him, the team behind the omen just agreed to play up the curse to sell tickets. But there is a note of dissent, which forms narrative two. Producer Harvey Bernhard recalled, All during the picture, there were strange things happening, and it was an aura of not being welcome. I really sincerely believe that the devil did not want the picture to be made. I thought Robert Munger, who, in addition to coming up with the idea for the film, also served as its religious advisor, He had a wonderful anecdote. He did not actually believe in the devil when filming started, but a famous theologian whom he doesn't, you know, name names, because these people never name names, 
warned him that if he went through with the production, he would change his mind, and the disasters that ensued on the set of The Omen actually did convince him of Satan's existence. I don't believe in curses, except when it comes to us. I think we are genuinely cursed. I have foretold the death of someone <laughs> before. So. Redacted. <laughs> Redacted. Um, I, I just think this man is basically saying that there's a higher power than the publicity department, which is just not true on a movie set. He is obviously functioning underneath them. So I I just don't buy it. Yeah, I agree. It's not beyond the pale that different people would have like different takes on something as contentious as a curse. I'm not saying that. It's it's more like the lack of rigor, you know, there's like a lot of like discombobulated lore. So for example, I think it's well established that there were three separate incidents in which a plane carrying a key member of the production was struck by lightning. Gregory Peck was on one of those planes, but it's the plane he didn't get on that's more important. He allegedly canceled his reservation for a chartered flight, which is sensibly crashed, killing everyone on board. Now this I find interesting, because I can't seem to substantiate it. I can't find anything about this damn plane. It's kind of like a Paula Abdul thing. The story also seems to vary a little. Richard Donner's version involves a plane they were planning on using, going out for a chartered flight, encountering engine trouble, and then crashing on the street, killing the pilot's wife and children in like a freak accident. And I can't, you know, and again, I didn't check every exhaustive newspaper archive, but between Variety, the LA Times. Uh, you think there'd be something written about you, it? Do you think there'd be true? something? If I know and, that Seth MacFarlane was supposed to be on one of the planes that hit the Twin Towers, then I should know if Gregory Peck was supposed to be on a certain plane that crashed into the ground. Well, so, I mean... Yes, especially because this particular plane that Peck allegedly didn't get on was bound for Israel. And this is at a time when obviously tensions are very high in the Middle East. There's, oh, there's going to be probably some sort of, you know, is this a terrorist event? Like, this feels like something that would be widely reported, especially if Gregory Peck was supposed to be on the plane. So, you know, it seems to be one of those things that people repeat because it makes a good story or because they're like credulous believers in the curse or whatever it is. But I'm not finding it. Um now, of course, if somebody's going to come and find, like, some clipping from, like, the Daily Mirror and it's just going to pull it out of their ass and whatever, you well, know. Well, they can start their own podcast. Yeah, go start your own podcast. Uh, there's also talk of a car crash, not to be confused with the very real and very unfortunate fatal accident that I'm going to get to in a moment. A hotel restaurant for which some of the top brass had reservations and a subway station they were passing were apparently bombed by the Irish Republican Army. At the wildlife park in Berkshire, where the baboon sequence was filmed, they also shot an ultimately deleted scene involving the lion compound. A park guard or the baboon trainer, depending on who's telling the story, was mauled and killed by either a lion or a tiger, again, depending on who's telling the story, the same day that they finished filming at the park. I mean, from that footage alone, though, you can tell caring for the animals and security, probably not on the up and up. It was, it's very tiger In this thing. location. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that, one, people were allowed to just drive their own cars in this park unattended seems like an accident waiting to happen that's like a baboon hit and run <laughs> that's an absolutely insane concept it was fairly common at the time i believe it's there are some places that they still do that i just it seems like a recipe for disaster my cousin um once went to a kind of like a meet and greet with a kangaroo <laughs> in the parking lot of a Kmart in Long Beach, California. Was it the one from um, Kangaroo Jack? I, what a I, meet and greet. I absolutely no idea. It was like some sort of like traveling petting zoo circus, but like with the exotic animals. He, he punched her in the face. He punched her in the face. She said that as she was like falling to the ground, she heard my uncle, her dad, yell out. And this is the, mo the thing that completely encapsulates my family, like to a T. He yelled out, I want a refund. <laughs> the scariest thing, though. 
about this particular story about the thing with the line compound. And I, I found this out and it's really, I find very distressing and probably proof of the curse. The most compelling proof of the curse to me is that that park is now a Legoland. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny to me because I don't understand the point of Legoland. I don't understand the idea of a theme park with Legos. Like, I don't get it. I, I'm sorry. I'm not a six year old boy, but I just, it doesn't, it, doesn't tickle my pickle. You know, I'm not really understanding the Legoland concept. So yeah, it's a Legoland today. Um, who knows how many people were killed by baboons and then they probably erected a very tasteful memorial made of Legos. Hopefully. You can only hope. It's a lot of red, red Legos. The most notorious of the film's many tragedies occurred after production wrapped and involved special effects artist John Richardson. Richardson, who designed the sequence in which the David Warner character is decapitated by a sheet of glass, was in the Netherlands working on the Richard Attenborough World War II epic A Bridge Too Far. Richardson was traveling with his assistant, prop sculptor Liz Moore, who was also his girlfriend, when something went wrong with their vehicle. As the story goes, Richardson awoke to find Moore beheaded, the car resting below a sign reading Amen, the name of a local town, and a road marker reading 66.6 kilometers. Now, that's a lot to happen to wake up to that's quite a lot yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be him um no this is this is the thing that people always trot out when it comes to the omen curse and obviously yes there are certain similarities it would suck to be the guy who comes up with the whole decapitation thing and then you know but um i do think it's cheap and reductive the same way that you know the the poltergeist curse is is reductive or the exorcist curse is reductive when it comes to actual like human death and suffering i do think it's cheap how what was likely the worst day in richardson's life has been reduced to like movie trivia it kind of reminds you that movies are a spectator sport that people can read about something like that and being like oh it's a curse and not like wow what a horrible horrible thing to happen to someone I also think it's a little sad how Liz Moore is reduced to the girlfriend or erroneously the wife when people discuss the omen curse rather than as a talented professional in her own right. Liz Moore was only 16 years old when she produced the portraits of Nancy Kwan that William Holden, by the way, again, William Holden, paints in the world of Susie Wong. You know, she was a teenage art student and she created the Star Child for 2001. She developed the prototype for CP3O, which she never got to see on screen. So this isn't just, you know, the death of someone's girlfriend. This is the death of somebody who had a, a budding career in, I think, the most exciting field that the movies offer. Prop artists, together with cinematographers, map painters, costume designers, and all the other unheralded figures the audience never saw, transformed cinema from static action, the recorded stage play, to the realm of the fantastic. And for most of film history, the rubber stamp dominated. Cedric Gibbons did not work on all of the 1,500 movies that bear his name. A whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears from a whole lot of MGM art department staffers went unrecorded, and their life's work dissipated into thin air. Only recently have we moved towards the practice of citing every intern and assistant who contributes to a project, which is often derided by people who miss the days of three title cards after the end. But an artist like Liz Moore ends up lost to history not only because of, you know, legal battles over corporate ownership of the Stormtrooper mask or whatever, but because she was uncredited. In her lifetime, she only received screen credit for her work on A Clockwork Orange. And in all the other cases, were it not for documentation of her on the set or her co-workers advocating for her memory, she would be relegated to the ranks of the anonymous. It's unfortunate that her untimely demise continues to supersede the creative legacy that she left behind. And I really maintain that creative credit is a feminist issue when it comes to filmmaking. Like in any field, you know. 
like in journalism or in business or any of the manifold, you know, all the, all the, all the different arenas in which there's a question of what did a woman accomplish versus what man took credit for it. You know, I think that's, that's one of the saddest things about it is thinking about how the practice is still rampant. And we're trying again with now with, with, with the internet and with like digital documentation in the form of like emails or whatever, it's harder to steal someone's work the way that people did in the past. And I'm not necessarily saying that anyone that was more work with intentionally like stole her work or stole or took credit for it. This is just a time in which prop people typically were not credited on screen. You know, it, the art director, the production designer, etc., were credited, but not everyone else. That's just what happened. But I think it's a really welcome change, especially because so many of the people toiling in these kind of unheralded roles are women. For every great male costume designer, for example, of the golden age, there were female seamstresses working below him. And those names are completely lost. I don't think the Oscars helped with this. I don't think the Oscars helped by attempting to pop, uh, kind of create a popular awareness of all of the work that goes into making a film. I think, think it kind of elided how many people work on a production. And that's how you end up with this kind of definitive idea of someone being responsible for something just because they received the credit or just because they're the name of the title. And it's like, that's not how movies work. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but that's not how movies work. And that's never how movies have worked. If you want a truly solitary art form, go read a novel, you know? Okay, but devil's advocate here, bear with me. Yeah. Under the old system of not crediting anyone, we wouldn't know that Jay Lee Thompson was the boom mic operator on Bride of Chucky. <laughs> You know what? And then I would have known Pete, so I think you're right. <laughs> that is such a bleak, that's honestly one of the darkest things. I can't, and it's just so matter of fact. That's like when Walter Beery dies in, you know, The Champ or something. You're just like, this is, this is, this is sad. This is pathetic. <laughs> that hits like nothing else, you know. You can tell me, you know, XYZ actor, you know, got lit on fire. <laughs> Who got lit on fire? Someone probably got lit on fire. Somebody did get lit on fire in the in the, in the silent era. Who got lit on fire? Oh, actress, uh, cigarette lit her on fire. Martha Mansfield. Yeah, yeah, Martha Mansfield in the Warrens of Virginia. Very sad, but not as sad. Not as sad. <laughs> Jaylee Thompson. Not as sad as what happened to Jaylee Thompson. Very few things are. If we're if we're being honest here. Anyway. Anyway. Now I'm distracted because I'm on the Wikipedia. I, I gotta get off the Wikipedia page for list of film and television accidents. It's just like it's too many. Okay. There are really two schools of thought on the Omen. To some, it is this masterwork of suspense. To others, it is a plodding, inept rehash of The Exorcist. Intellectually, I fall into the latter camp. The theological underpinning of the omen is weak, in part because it lacks, you know, the invocation of 2,000 years of dogma that you get with someone like William Peter Blatty, who was steeped in church tradition. In your Exorcist episode, Todd, we talked for a bit about how there was this clarity of purpose that William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin brought to the project. Blatty as a Roman Catholic who had undergone a crisis of conscience, and Friedkin as an agnostic troublemaker, kind of sniffing penny-like at the edges of what was at the time still regarded as a minority faith with impenetrable myth, despite the Vatican II era efforts to modernize the church. So I kind of visualize this as being like a knot. Blatty presents this knot and then freaking unties it. Blatty's preferred ending, which is wholesome and that Reagan has been redeemed by Christ, kind of like tucks the untied knot into a pretty little bow. And then Friedkin's more cynical take balls the whole thing back up again. There is this great schismatic push-pull of faith in its absence 
that is not present in the omen. Because the omen ends on such a sinister note, it's maybe a little more successful in kicking the audience back out onto the street feeling uneasy, which I think horror movies should do. But part of that's because there's really nothing of theological or metaphysical significance to unravel in the first place. There's no deeper meaning because, you know, Satan was always going to win. Gregory Peck didn't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. Um, So the final shot, while, of course, one of the great plot twists of cinema, one of the first that comes to mind when you think shock ending and really the face of evil that launched a thousand derivative kind of straight to video ships. It doesn't quite hold up to repeat viewing the way that the exorcist does, even though, again, the omen ends on, I think, a much more contemporary note about kind of making concessions to evil. I mean, I like the implication that Damien will become president. Um, But as we find out in the second one, the second one is leaps and bounds beyond any of the Exorcist sequels. I'll say that. I feel like the Omen 2, if you, if you took the name, the Omen 2 off it and just called it, I don't know, call it the birthmark, whatever. it's such a complete it's such a great sequel it's such a complete this is not like jaws 2 like this is like a movie that stands alone you know (laughs) lou airs (laughs) todd how would you describe this when he goes i don't he's under the ice there's like a what what is happening there's a current under under but that's not frozen because there's ice i don't know you need to set it up. Lou Ayers is in The Omen 2, which was largely the reason why we decided to watch it, because it's his last film that was released theatrically. I don't want to speak for everyone else, but it was the only reason I decided to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Candace also watched for William Holden, yeah. and he is like the business partner or like the boss of William Holden. I don't know their exact... They work together. And for some reason, they're all playing ice hockey on this frozen lake. Uh, And I think at this point, Lou Ayers has expressed some reservations about Damien and his true nature. And obviously this can't stand. So Lou Ayers is wearing (laughs) (laughs) this puffy orange coat with the hood pulled up like it's a down coat you described Um, it as a maggie simpson's (laughs) starfish parka coat thing which i think is very accurate it's true it took you a few like a few shots to realize that it was well yeah he's got that hood up like fluoro orange (laughs) um and it's just not something you expect like octogenarian (laughs) lewis to be wearing and they're playing with the children and lewis goes out on his own and <laughs> falls through the ice um, and is sort of splashing about and they all try and come and help him. But then obviously the current drags him under and he's underneath the ice moving. Um, and obviously you can see his bright orange coat through the ice and they're like following him, trying to dig through the ice. <laughs> Hold on, Bill! Somebody get up the hole! Oh, God, he's gone! I've got to say, William Holden gives up real fast <laughs> yeah. about trying to get him. He, like, gives up. He, like, doesn't follow him as he's being pulled by the current. Well, okay. And then when he finally pops back up in a hole in the eyes, he falls to his knees, 
before Luez dies. <laughs> like, he's just like, oh, the humanity, and falls to his knees. Okay, and to defend still Bill, time. He was in such terrible shape at this point in time. <laughs> he probably couldn't keep up. <laughs> with Luers being pulled by that current. But anyway, it's an incredible sequence. It's kind of like envision Luers as Harry Bailey and then <laughs> Damien is George and he just lets he just lets Harry die. It's probably Lou's best performance. <laughs> they get all quiet on the Western Front. Good holiday. That scene and also the bit where Lou is like on the little cart oh. driving around the facility. Yeah, they're on a golf cart. I think The Omen 2 is probably... I think if you've never seen The Omen, you should just go watch The Omen 2 because it's actually a better movie. The Omen is is a very historically significant film. And I think it's worth it. Because, like, again, I really dogged Gregory Peck in our Cape Fear episode. I want to make it clear, I do respect Greg as, like, a person, as an activist, as an actor most of the time. But he does not have the range that Lou Ayres has while drowning. Well, no one does. Puffer vest. No one does. Catherine Cornell couldn't have played that scene. That is a Lou Ayers original. Good for him. Artistically, eh, that's kind of how I feel about The Omen, artistically. Um, I think there's one brief scene in particular that's representative of the movie's problems. In his warning to Peck, Father Brennan spits out some gobbledygook, apparently quoting a nonspecific book of revelations, not to be confused with the biblical book of revelation. When the Jews return to Zion and a comet rips the sky the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die. From the eternal sea, he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother, till man exists no more. And at one point when they're in Italy, Peck and David Warner are discussing the prophecy regarding the birth of the Antichrist. It's making more sense. The Jews have returned to Zion, and there has been a comet. And as for the rise of the Roman Empire, scholars think that that could well mean the formation of the common market, the Treaty of Rome. Bit of a stretch. And Greg goes, bit of a stretch. And like, yeah, that is, that is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah. The common market or the European Union, I, I suppose, could bear some like superficial resemblance to the Holy Roman Empire as like a configuration of states. But like Voltaire said... Since the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, it has fuck all to do with the Roman Empire of antiquity when this supposedly biblical text would have been created because the Holy Roman Empire didn't exist until after the death of Charlemagne. So, you know David Seltzer's never cracked open a high school history textbook. Nah, don't need to. People in Hollywood can't read. First of all, fundamentally, no one in Hollywood is literate. And again, I would like to say... Tiff made a point the other day when she said that adult illiteracy is a serious problem. <laughs> it's not funny. But it is funny when you think about Mickey Rooney not being able to read. And that's kind of the stance I take on this one. I, I think that they were just getting funky with it. They were like, I don't need to know about the history of this. I just want to make it sound cool. Yeah. And uh, and I respect them for that. That's totally know? fine. Like, it, it's a movie. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a PhD dissertation. I don't give a shit. But... I do think it's really funny. And uh, I do like, it's just like a bit of a stretch. One of my favorite writing techniques, and by which I mean like my least favorite writing techniques, is like when something doesn't quite work and then the screenwriter will just have a character draw attention to it. Like it's some sort of like quirky, like logical like gap and not like a glaring plot hole. I love that. I think that's really good. And I think that's how movies should be made all the time. So unlike The Exorcist, which was based on a best-selling novel, the lead up to the omen was a little more puppet show and spinal tap. <laughs> uh, 
no. Right. If I told them once, I told them a hundred times to put spinal tap first and puppet show last. It's so a morale builder, isn't it? We've got a big dressing room, though. It's in, what? Uh, you know, got the big dressing room. Oh, we've got a bigger dressing room than the, the puppet, puppet show. So that's refreshing. Yeah. The LA Times headline for the film's local premiere was Gregory Peck film to open. So Puppet Show and Spinal Tap, you know, nothing about, you know, the, again, so this was a whole, the omen curse, the omen curse. But Gregory Peck film to open, baby. There's no mention, you know, of any demonic activity there. This did not last long, however, in part thanks to the curse. The Omen was obviously a smash. It was the sixth biggest box office success of 1976. Rocky was number one, in case you're wondering. Fox's advertising spend dwarfed the movie's production budget, and it worked. Billboards chastised drivers with, remember, you have been warned. And subway ads greeted writers with, good morning. You are one day closer to the end of the world. I mean, they're punchy. They're punchy, and they're true. We are objectively one day closer to the end of the world. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and we have been warned. I've been warned of many things. I've just chosen not to follow those instructions. After the movie's extremely lucrative opening weekend, Fox upped the ante with a new tagline. For those of you who haven't seen it yet, we urge you to do just one thing. Ask anyone who's seen it. Anyone. Which I like. I think that's good because it's so non-specific, you know? That could mean anything. It could be about any movie. Theaters across America were provided with trailers, which was still an expensive form of publicity back when, you know, distribution required physical celluloid. Sneak previews, historically restricted to industry folks or used as a sort of focus group to gauge public appetite, became a marketing strategy of their own, with Fox publicizing sold-out screenings nationwide. But where The Omen broke new ground was with its novelization. We talked about novelizations in Amelia's Poltergeist episode. This was an old practice, as anyone who's ever read a 30s fan magazine would know, where it's like our, you know, abridged version of fucking My Man Godfrey, and it's like 12 lines long, and it's got new di- anyway, whatever, I hate that shit. Apparently, it goes back to the silent era, which I find really interesting. I don't understand the idea of novelizations in general. I do, I think I, I think I probably told this story on a previous podcast, but uh, I remember going to Costco and buying... The Mike Myers Cat in the Hat on DVD. Now with my own money, like my grandma bought it for me. And it had the novelization. And in the novelization... The Cat, the cat in the Hat is already a book. I Look, so many things are happening here. And in the book, there's the line where Conrad, corndog, whatever his name is, <laughs> refers to shoving a loaf of bread down his pants to, quote unquote, protect the family jewels. And I remember asking my mom what the family jewels meant, and she got really mad and wanted to know where I'd heard this. And I was like, the cat in the hat. So thanks for nothing, Mike Myers. I got yelled at by my mom. Is Mike Myers alive? Has anyone seen him recently? Yeah, he's still alive. I don't know <laughs> yeah, what he's, he's doing. still alive. <laughs> yeah, he's still alive. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, he could be dead. Like, any of us could be dead. Like, I know you guys aren't dead because I'm talking to you right now, but, like, Mike Myers could be dead. Schrodinger's Mike Myers. He's <laughs> Mike Myers. I mean, it makes sense for older films to have novelizations because it's like you're reliving the film at a time where it was not easy to access the film after you'd seen it in theatre. I mean, not so much for silent films, because it's like, I don't think that a novelization of a silent film is going to be that representative of what you saw uh, at the at the cinema. Um, plus, you could just read any other book instead. Whereas, like this time, the more specific novelizations that came in the seventies, sixties, seventies, it makes sense in a way to have them. But it's like also why just read another yeah, book? Just read a book. <laughs> just read a real book. Like that's absolutely yeah. Just read a real book. <laughs> just read a real book. David Seltzer's adaptation of his script became a number one bestseller. The novelization was in its 16th printing within two months of the film's release, having sold 
over two and a half million copies. That's fucking bonkers. People don't How read books anymore. How long is the novelization? Eh? I don't know. Um, I know it's illegally available for download on the internet, but I didn't bother reading it because, um, like, I've seen the movie. But it's, it can't be that long. Like, max, like, what, 200 pages? Probably substantially less than that. Two and a half million copies. It probably outsold The Exorcist at that point. 272 pages. 272 pages. But, you know, people don't buy books anymore, so I guess at least people were parting with their $1.50 for a signet paperback. People aren't willing to do that anymore. It's kind of like the idea of the movie star. You know, I maintain that the point of a movie star is, does this person's name sell tickets? And in an era where it's not about fiscal output, but about, like, spending your time, that doesn't mean anything, you know? If I turn a movie on, on Netflix that's produced for Netflix... And I watch it. I might as well be watching, you know, the cat lick his ass on the floor. Like, it's just background noise. You know, my time means nothing. It's not a real investment, especially during the pandemic. All I fucking got is time. So not everyone was into the novelization boom. No less a celebrated writer than Larry McMurtry said of this business practice. These publications look like, read like, and are promos. They are little more than glorified press books, and they perform a modest but evidently not totally negligible function in the promotion of a film. In these particular non-books, no pretense of scholarship or utility exists. He's right, and he should say it. Non-books. <laughs> he makes the point that you're buying it literally for the pictures on the inside, you know, for the stills from the movie, but they're printed on shitty paper, and they're too small. And he said that some of the writing in some of these novelizations is so bad, or some of the scripts, like some of these uh, scripts were published at the time. He specifically mentions, I think it's Missouri Breaks, but he says, like, the script is so bad that, like, it had so many uses of the phrase some bitch that, like, had he actually read that before he went to go see the movie, he wouldn't have seen the movie. Because he'd been like, this dialogue sucks. And he's right, and he should say it. Fuck novelizations, and fuck Mike Myers. So... The movie's box office infused Fox with some much-needed cash, a string of lemons, among them Paul Mazursky's next stop, Greenwich Village, the Blazing Saddles-esque Duchess in the Dirt Water Fox, starring Friend of the Pod, George Siegel. Oh, God and damn it. Colossal, and the absolutely colossal flop, Lucky Lady, which, if you ever want to read about a troubled production, that's one to read about, had burnt a Cleopatra-sized hole in the studio's pocket. On the strength of The Omen and Fox's other big hit of 76, Mel Brooks's silent movie, Alan Ladd Jr. was able to trim down Fox's slate for 1977, focusing on quality over quantity. The results speak for themselves. Star Wars, Superman, Three Women, The Turning Point, Julia, High Anxiety, and My Beloved, An Unmarried Woman. The LA Times estimated The Omen's earnings as $33 million as of mid-August 1976, making The Omen one of the first true summer blockbusters in the tradition of Jaws, which had cleared out every beach in America the year prior. Producer Harvey Bernhardt stated that, quote, During the Olympics, business for everyone went down 25%, but we only slipped 2.1%, and then we started building again right away. So people were forsaking seeing, I don't know, Russian gymnasts or whatever the fuck to go see The Omen. I don't watch gymnastics live anymore since Rio, when I got up early in the morning to watch men's gymnastics and a guy dislocated his knee in front of me. <laughs> And I went back to bed. I was like, oh, this isn't happening anymore. Gregory Peck received 10% of gross receipts and as time passed made a fortune from the film, which ultimately became the biggest box office success of his career. Man. Um, previously, that had been The Guns of Navarone. But Okay, yeah, I guess. And again, remember, he hadn't had a hit in 10 years. And at that point in time, he had been producing movies. So not only was he in movies that sucked and didn't make any money, these were movies that he selected and funded that sucked and didn't make any money, which is the worst kind of failure. Look, he tried. Like, we're trying right now. I think we're trying harder than he did. Um, <laughs> so Gregory Peck was quite pleased with the film, uh, saying, you'd be surprised how people stop me on the street. They're smiling from ear to ear. They say, oh, I wanted you to kill that little monster. <laughs> Harvey Stevens, a.k.a. Damien, was even nominated for the New Star of the Year Golden Globe, 
Who do you think he lost to? The year is 1976. 1976. Mark Hamill. No. Too early. Um, Too early. Um, I'm drawing a blank. I don't know. Friend of the podcast, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he he should have lost to Arnie. Yeah, I mean, Arnie ended up becoming like an actual star, which like this kid didn't. I saw that on, uh, God, I was reading something and Harvey Bernhardt, I think it was Harvey Bernhardt, one of the people associated with The Omen 2, said that the kid who plays Damien, bigger Damien, not the biggest Damien because that's Sam Neill, but medium-sized Damien, um, like a babushka doll. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Uh, that he was like a mini Richard Burton. And he had never seen a performance as compelling since Richard Burton. And I was like, I don't know what you're on. Yeah, that's not the movie I watched. The most compelling performance in the movie, as established, is Luer's. So Luer's might be the best thing since Richard Burton. But So the new star of the year Golden Globe is like my favorite award ever. Because some years, it's like, oh, right on the money. Warren Beatty. You know, so, they'll, they'll pick someone and you're like, yes, of course. Great, you know, going on to, to reach new heights in film, you know. Um, and then other years, it's like, who the fuck are these people? And some years, they gave it to everyone who got nominated. Every single person got the award. 1963 was one of those exceptions, though. There were five nominees that year and four winners. Terrence Stamp, Kier DeLay, Peter O'Toole, and Omar Sharif all won the award. Only Paul Wallace went home empty <laughs> Can you imagine... <laughs> <That's> brutal. <laughs> going to the goddamn Golden Globes. <laughs> And you are the only person in your category who doesn't get an award. I think, I, mean, I would think about that every, I, I don't know how much longer he lived after that. Maybe he's still alive, maybe he's not, but I, I would die a lonely, bitter old man. At that point, that is literally bullying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Anyway, so that, the kid from The Omen who kept kicking Richard Donner in the balls lost to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, who is the Antichrist, did in fact end up becoming governor of California. So he had Damien's career in politics. He pumped so much iron. Recently had secret heart surgery. It's watching Kindergarten Cop just yesterday. So, which filmed in Astoria, Oregon, just like the Goonies, directed by just Richard like Donner. the Goonies. Yeah, canonically, yeah. they happen in the same place. Uh huh. Anyway, that's sad about the Golden Globes. I'm sorry to the little devil child. Um, <laughs> the critical reaction to the Omen, however, was more mixed. Newsweek editor Jack Kroll excoriated the film in an editorial entitled Deviled Ham, wherein he compared the film unfavorably with The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, stating that, quote, no true connoisseur of kitsch, unquote, will be fooled by the omen, which he called dumb and largely dull. Kroll's review went to press on the eve of the Democratic National Convention, and he found the suggestion that the Antichrist would ascend to the world stage via the Oval Office a little funny, considering that Jimmy Carter, a devout Baptist, had a fighting chance in the race. But if you extrapolate a little on Kroll's thinking, you hit on what perhaps renders the omen more frightening now than it was in the dying days of another deeply unpopular presidential administration. The post-Watergate zeitgeist of betrayal and shaken foundations did, of course, change some aspects of American politics, at least for a while. The American love affair with the political outsider, the plain-spoken every-man-with-a-day job, would send Carter and ultimately Ronald Reagan, although ideological opposites, uh, to the White House, born on the same wind of disenchantment with the lockstep governance that had produced Ford and Nixon. The other two key contenders in the 1976 Democratic primaries, Mo Udall and Jerry Brown, both came from political families. And yet it was Carter, not the son of Satan, but that of a peanut farmer, who snagged the nomination. In 1976, it didn't take the Antichrist to make Americans wary of the Washington elite, and yet the movie ends with the president, whom we know through earlier dialogue, to be Peck's old college roommate, adopting Damien. 
So really, I think that depending on how you look at it, the movie is either an indictment of establishment politics and establishment politicians and their whole like well-heeled, well-connected world, or a commentary on how even the most settled, methodical, uncontroversial sort of Republican system can be vulnerable to foreign influence. In 1976, that influence would be the Soviets. In 2016, the Russians. In 2020, it would be either armed, fascistic, white supremacists with the stated goal of voter disenfranchisement, if you're a thinking person, or teenage Antifa's on TikTok, if you have Fox News brainworms. In either reading, democracy is a failure, and the ascendance of a chosen one is a foregone conclusion. And I think this speaks pretty strongly to where we are right now, awaiting an American presidential election, just as audiences were when The Omen debuted in the summer of 76. Americans in 1976 were just as concerned with political hegemony as we are in 2020. The issues are different. But there is in both of these election cycles a pervasive and at times all-consuming awareness that our society is no longer ours, whatever that may mean, and that the government is not responsive to our needs, whatever those may be. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this movie hit theaters midway through America's bicentennial year. Lee Ramick at one point refers to her husband as a future U.S. president, but Gregory Peck can't even stop a baby from murdering his wife. <laughs> So how do we expect him to win the Cold War? I think the political anxiety underlining the omen is the most timeless thing about the movie. Absolutely. It definitely feels like it captures that undercurrent of like nepotism and, you know, backdoor dealings and that kind of established political class um, that was really going out of favor after Watergate. And I mean, we can't say that Nixon wasn't the Antichrist. So... (laughs) Um, I definitely think that that kind of relevance remains to this day, and it's an interesting interpretation of it. But also love the implication that perhaps in this movie that the president that adopts Damien is Jimmy Carter. (laughs) I mean, he does have, like, Gregory Peck at one point describes him as being a southerner, which... So, I mean... (laughs) It's a little pointed. You know, we've only had so many Southerners as president in the 20th century. I mean, it's either that or Gerald Ford. And, like, I can't imagine Gerald Ford with a child, let alone raising one. Well, he pardoned one. So (laughs) I kind of go, like, back and forth, like, kind of tossing the whole thing, like, over in my mind. And it's just such an interesting, weird culmination of political fear at this point in time like the exorcist takes place in dc but there's no political content in it whereas in this movie which doesn't take place in america which doesn't take place in america there is there's a much bigger emphasis on um the role of politics and i think you know personally i think when you put all this information together you put together all the signs i think somebody should be checking jared kushner for birthmarks you know (laughs) shave him shave his hair in the in the in the middle of the night, which Tiff noted that how the fuck could you sleep through that? Yeah, it's an interesting element of the story, that political intrigue, and especially in the context of the time. I don't know if it was deliberate on the part of the filmmakers, considering they couldn't even do research into, you know, basic Christian dogma. But um, if they didn't do it on purpose, it is certainly an interesting time capsule of feelings I guess, subconscious feelings about politics. and Yeah, I was going to say, I think it could be argued that it sort of just speaks to the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, it's like, it's serendipitous, you know, it's, it's, even if it's not meant to be political rhetoric, it has kind of the undertone of like, I don't know, it just feels like this is something that um, in the hands of someone else would be a propaganda piece, but because you have the most agnostic of 
individuals, which is the average Hollywood commercial filmmaker, it doesn't go in that direction. You know, whereas if Oliver Stone were to make this movie. <laughs> uh, another thing to consider, more specific to the film's time period, is what it suggests about the externality of evil. This is kind of an extension of the foreign influence quotient above. In The Exorcist, the devil invades and Reagan's mind and body begin to decompose. Blatty's dialogue employs the vocabulary of decay. The demon tells Father Karras it will stay in Reagan until she rots and lies stinking in the earth. Evil is a disease that infects Reagan through an interpersonal medium, or rather an international medium, since it's a Ouija board. Her mother's fame plays a role in securing the help of Father Karras, from which point he argues up the ladder, seeking permission from the Archdiocese to the Vatican. The hierarchy of stardom mirrors the hierarchy of the church. But the devil doesn't choose Reagan because of who her mother is. Evil doesn't discriminate. The why me, why us factor, which is sidelined in The Exorcist, is of course the major revelation in Rosemary's Baby. The plot hinges upon it. The same is true of The Omen. The Thorn family are vessels for Damien. Satan and his merry band of misfits extract from the thorns the resources required for Damien's conquest and then clean house. So in that sense, Damien is an externality. He is not Gregory Peck and Lee Remick's biological child. And this is where some of the messaging in the film gets dicey. When Damien's true nature becomes apparent, Peck, like the priest who murdered the Thorn's infant child to ensure that Damien's adoption would take place, or not, if you're going to take Amelia's interpretation that Damien bludgeoned the kid to death himself, which is entirely <laughs> possible, Peck kind of reckons with, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, the consequences of patriarchy, the consequences of unilateral decision-making in the domestic sphere. Lee Remick doesn't know consciously what happened at the hospital that night, doesn't know that her biological child is dead, doesn't know that Damien has taken his place, doesn't know that her husband made the arrangement to shield her from suffering, but she is aware unconsciously. She has nightmares and intrusive thoughts about her son being an alien. When she becomes pregnant again, she requests an abortion, which Peck refuses. And of course, because it's the 70s, she is to be reconciled with herself through psychoanalysis, First is the mother of a living toddler, second is the unwilling host of a gestating fetus, and third, though again she does not know it, as the mother of a dead infant. She asks Gregory Peck for psychiatric help to cope with the thoughts and feelings she experiences, but the viewer knows it's hopeless. There is something in the mother-child bond so incisive, this terrifying precision with which a woman can look objectively at her offspring and see them for what they really are. It works in The Exorcist because Ellen Burstyn knows that this thing is not her child, and it works in The Omen because Lee Remick knows that this thing is... And that's why, as Father Brennan warns Peck, Remick has to die. And I, I think it's an interesting decision to kill her off. And part of it is like very much like, you know, Frigid the Lady. But I think it makes a powerful statement as to what Damien and his handmaids, I guess, are aware of in terms of earthly opposition. You know, like they can see this awareness that she has within her and that she's obviously a means to an end. You know, she's there for reproduction and she's and she's... She's there for nurturing Damien through infancy, but well, then that's enough. You know, it's time for her to go. Yeah, she's expendable at the end she's of the day. She's expendable. Whereas Pack has to play a, a bigger role. He because he's the man, because he's the person with the political connections. He has to live another day until he doesn't. You know, but that's the end of the movie. Oh, and then there's the sequels. And, and then there's the sequels. Damien goes to military school. It's just like Cadet Kelly. Oh my God! Oh the no! The Omen Two is Cadet Kelly. <laughs> Hillary Duff scrabbling on the ice to try and save Louise <laughs> as he drowns. She, Hillary Duff would not have let that happen. Christy Carlson. No, she would have broken through that ice. God, she would have saved Louise. Maybe Christy Carlson Romano is like possessed by the devil in Cadet Kelly, and that's why she's such a bitch. <laughs> 
I'm, ha- I'm making a lot of connections yeah. here. That's what that's what this whole <laughs> podcast is about, making connections. So there's been quite a bit written about mothers in horror. The cinematic archetype of the cursed child, and by extension, the cursed mother, does stretch back many years. The Uninvited from 1944 comes to mind immediately, as does what is probably the Omen's most direct ancestor, The Bad Seed from 1956. But it's 1960 to 1981, I'd say, bookended at one end by Psycho, and by Friday the 13th Part 2 at the other, that proves to be the most fecund period for the problematic mother in horror. The United States is undergoing, to invoke again one of my favorite of William Friedkin's phrases, a national nervous breakdown, and some would say that this dredges up some very Freudian shit as both audiences and filmmakers navigate the generation gap and negotiate what, if anything, it implies for the future of the movies. The depiction of children and childhood changes demonstrably with the dismantling of the production code, and Psycho breaks the emotional incest taboo Hollywood had been dallying with in shade and shadow for several decades. I would direct the curious listener to possessive mother melodramas like The Silver Cord from 1933. It's a very old topic in the movies. That has Joel McCrae in it. Yeah, I was going to say. It's... Amelia sounds so disappointed. By the 60s, it's not my fault that he made mommy incest movies. Um, By the 60s, it's no longer a question. (laughs) Yeah, but it's your fault for liking them. It's it's a terrible movie, and he's so bad at it. And you're like, just let him go, Irene Dunn. The man can't read. Talk about somebody who couldn't read. By the 60s, it's no longer a question of dancing on the edge. The movies decide conclusively that something is wrong with mommy. This is how you end up with some frightening and often misogynistic theses on motherhood from a variety of perspectives. One example is David Cronenberg's The Brood from 1979, a supernatural sort of custody battle turned father's rights plea, reflective of Cronenberg's own experiences as a man navigating a bitter divorce. In The Brood, Samantha Egger isn't just an unfit mother, irrevocably scarred by her own abusive childhood. She literally manifests her misguided parenting in the form of Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, skip a few seconds. I'm warning you now. A rabid pack of killer dwarves. <laughs> uh, another example would be The Baby, directed by Ted Post in 1973. What appears to be a struggle between an altruistic social worker, played by Anjanette Comer, and an overbearing mother, played by Ruth Roman, concerning the social assimilation of a developmentally delayed young man, is revealed to be, spoiler alert again, skip. A gruesome crusade on Comer's part to supply her disabled husband with a captive playmate forevermore. The Baby is a wild movie. Motherhood and its motivations are under assault on screen in this period, which, as I mentioned before, kind of culminates and flames out like a beautiful supernova with Mrs. Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 2 in 1981. Throughout this era, we see a constant wrestling for supremacy between two questions. What a mother will do for her child and what a mother will do to her child. The 60s and 70s is about interrogating inherited wisdom, and the interrogation most relatable to your average middle American moviegoer at that point in time is not about psychedelic drugs or wild sex or radical politics, but about the dynamic between parents and children. In this period, we see young people postponing marriage or shirking it entirely in favor of unmarried cohabitation. There is a concerted opposition to the Vietnam draft among young men, often in direct conflict with the military service of their World War II and Korean War veteran fathers. Young women are opting for careers over children. Young people are forming romantic relationships that cross heretofore impassable boundaries of race, class, and gender. This is a generation of civil rights, women's liberation, and gay pride. These are changes both global and local, protests both public and personal, and intentions both voiced aloud and held, as the Catholic Mass says, getting back to the omen, in the silence of our hearts. So what do we think the enduring popularity of the omen has to say about all of this? Do we think that when Lee Remick looks at her son and knows deep down that he is the destroyer of worlds... Other parents, freed by the babysitter on a Friday night, going to the movies to get scared, look at their children and see the same thing. Because I think that's what's going on. I genuinely think that's part of what we find so compelling about The Omen all these years later. 
And I kind of thought of it like your kid doesn't have to become this back to the land, no nukes, Manson family, 1969 Midwestern Republican PTA mob nightmare for you to be disoriented by the revolving identity. I was kind of thinking it's like the dream Mia Farrow has in Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary as a character is eternally sympathetic because what she undergoes poses this eternal dilemma about the degree to which we as women are responsible for the sins of those we bear. And I feel like the omen in a weird way, despite not having any women behind the creative team, not having really anyone, quite honestly, besides Lee Remick, in a, in a position of any real importance, I think it really does pose a very interesting kind of question about what motherhood means in the movies at this very particular moment, at this time of great social upheaval. Yeah, I think it's an interesting line to draw. Um, there's always been that, like, the role of mother and that relationship between mother and child. It's always been something that's explored in uh, creative exploits. And it's interesting to see this kind of inversion happen, you know, from that breakdown of the code and with Psycho sort of twisting that relationship and it's like making it so dysfunctional. Whereas in the Omen, it's like, for the most part, they have a good relationship and it's only when she sort of questions, really begins to question and also poses a threat to his supremacy by virtue of just being a fertile woman, um, that their relationship really sort of breaks down to a point where it's not salvageable. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting, like, it's really a sort of solo battle within herself about her own relationship to her motherhood and to her child. You're not really in any doubt about, you know, this child is evil, but she doesn't know that. And I, I think it's a really interesting play on that. Um, I would have liked to have seen it interpreted by a woman in writing, because I think there could have been more nuance added than what is given in the film, which is just a few scenes with the psychologist that she's talking to. And then a couple of conversations she has with Gregory Peck is it would have been nice to have seen that explored a bit more, but yeah, it is a different take on it. I think maybe that's how you could remake the omen and make it relevant, really get at what Damien implies, not only for the Catherine Thorne characters fate, but also for her marriage for her status as a mother, her status as a, as a as this kind of a social figure, you know. I gotta say, if my fucking husband told me I couldn't get an abortion, he's not my fucking husband anymore. I know she should have stabbed him with some of Boogantagen's baby stabbers, but <laughs> she should have pushed him over the fucking balcony, and he would have gone over like like a wooden plank because he can't bend in the middle. Just also, she has some kick-ass ferns. I was saying this to Todd when we were watching it. But, like, all of the ferns that she's watering when she gets pushed over the balcony are sick. Wish I had those. I would agree, though, that uh, that would be probably the ideal way to attempt a remake. Because, like, her rejection of her child is something that I think is still very taboo. And that would still, I think, be very, like, jarring to people. And the idea, which isn't really probed at in the film, but that, like, again, like I said, Gregory Peck found, like, not quite believable about the movie is that he's supposed to be this good person 
and yet like he would conceal her 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 child's death from her mm-hmm. and then yeah i was gonna say that's the thing that gets me he's like really up for just adopting this baby gregory actually like when he first got the script he was like well wouldn't this guy like do like a background check you know what i mean like wouldn't he want to know more other than like oh the mom's dead here's a kid you know but now i'm gonna talk about fatherhood we're gonna we're gonna roast peck a little bit in the movie, not in real life, for reasons that I will get to. So I think we can elucidate this particular situation by turning from motherhood and parentage taken broadly to fatherhood in particular. And in The Omen, Gregory Peck is an affectionate but withdrawn paternal figure. The character is too encumbered by gendered expectations of parenting, by the patriarchal divide between the working world and the domestic sphere, and by Peck's fucked up stilted physicality to be much more engaged than that. If Peck, real life Peck, not movie Peck, hadn't fucked up his back in his younger years, he could have very plausibly just hoisted Damien and punted him like a football into the Irish Sea. That's <laughs> what I would have done. Even I can drop kick a baby. I mean, I could definitely drop kick a baby. Like, what do they weigh? What could Damien possibly weigh? Like, yeah, it would hurt when you landed on your foot. But if you had the right momentum. Todd, how much does a baby weigh at Damien's age? <laughs> He's the only person here who knows anything about babies. Uh, what is he, five? I guess he might be around like 40, 50 pounds. Ooh, that might hurt. I might break my foot. <laughs> I'd probably have to build up to it. You know, I'd kick like bags of flour, you know. Much like Rocky doing the like... Training montage to yeah. dropkick a baby. That's what Greg should have done. Well, in my remake that I'm making now, um, who who would be in it? Um, Nat Wolf from the Naked Brothers Band playing uh, Gregory Peck will in fact dropkick the baby into the ocean after a training montage. Why is that kid in so many movies nowadays? But crucially, Peck in this movie isn't a bad dad. He's just like the exact kind of dad that you would expect him to be as this conservative, buttoned up, Ivy League educated Washington diplomat. And you know, up until he decides to stab his son, then he's not a conservative Washington diplomat. He's the guy who decides to murder a baby. It's Lee Remick's impulses that run counter to nature for the bulk of the narrative. So in this allegory, intentional or otherwise, for incompetent parenting, Remick is a much more compelling and intriguing character. Although as the second lead, she is sidelined for some more of Greg's patented, constipated gaping. I think the omen is much more ambivalent about the role of fathers than it is about the role of mothers. Although Peck is the protagonist and the instigator of almost all plot points. Remick, after all, dies in a secular space, murdered by Satanists, that's a passive death, albeit a spectacular one, and a very clear judgment from the devil and the screenwriter. She's outlived her usefulness. Since, in order to serve the plot twist at the funeral, we don't actually see Peck's death, it oddly feels more subdued. Although it is a more active death, since one, it occurs while he is perpetrating a murder of his own, and two, since that murder is of the most unspeakable sort, the murder of a small child. It feels like very conventional dramatic structure, and very unconventional moral structure at the same time, since it allows for but doesn't capitalize on a death scene that would be more in keeping with the kind of graphic brutality elsewhere in the picture. Although, again, from the omniscient perspective we see at the funeral, it is Peck above all who's controverted Satan's plans for Damien. He's the one who got in the way. Here's where we get into something a little sticky. When you contextualize all of this with what was going on in Gregory Peck's off-screen life, the omen takes on a certain depth that you would not see in the script alone. In the summer of 1975, Peck's son Jonathan was working as a field reporter in Santa Maria, a farming town on California's central coast. It was a small television station with the expectation that its reporters would produce three stories a day, even in the slow times endemic to a sleepy agricultural community. 
Jonathan was frequently camped outside the police station or mayor's office by sunrise, waiting for something of consequence to happen, and then heading out to Santa Barbara in hopes of catching some big city scoop before his 1 p.m. deadline. His job encompassed what would have been several roles at a bigger station, from sourcing stories to working the camera. The station's budget was so restrictive that Greg sent his sons cans of film in case of rationing. This was obviously an untenable situation for Jonathan, who had previously worked at a CBS radio affiliate in Los Angeles, where major stories broke by the minute. Jonathan felt immense pressure not only to succeed in the dog-eat-dog world of television news, but to escape his father's shadow. Stephen Peck said of his older brother, Jonathan's greatest problem was that he set goals which were too high. Part of the reason he set such high goals was that he was the son of a famous man. In June of 1975, 31-year-old Jonathan, struggling with depression and anxiety amid several personal and professional setbacks, shot himself at his home in Santa Barbara. Whether accident or suicide, mostly towards the latter, Greg took his son's death very hard. As Lynn Haney notes in her biography of Peck, it was an era rife with early deaths among the children of old Hollywood stars. Scott Newman, Mary Selznick, Jenny Arness, Dan Daly III, Lindsey Crosby, Michael Boyer, Bridget Hayward, Diane Linkletter, and Louis Jordan Jr., plus more I can't even think of probably, also died by suicide or accidental overdose. For Greg, I'm sure it was difficult to play a father, especially a father grappling with the fate of his child's immortal soul mere months after losing his own son. I think that's pretty fair to say. Yeah, I didn't realize they happened that close together. Yeah, part of that's the reason pretty rough. why... Part of the reason why he was looking for scripts at that point in time when the omen crossed his desk wasn't just because of the failure of Billy Two Hats with Desi Arnaz Jr., but because he needed a distraction. Mm -hmm. He needed to go back to work. And you also have to remember, too, that Greg was a Catholic. Right. And he was a a progressive Catholic who opposed church dogma on social issues like abortion and homosexuality, but he was still a Catholic nonetheless. So this has to be, it's it's almost like a very weird form of therapy, I feel. Like, the omen had to be cathartic in some way. But I, I don't know. I, I think that the, the psychology of that is really interesting. And I, I would love to know more about what he was, how he was processing this. Because, you know, at the time of filming the omen, he was uh, thinking of Jonathan, and I'm quoting here, every day, every hour. So it's hard. And I think of all the movies to do. But maybe it was the fact that the film was being shot overseas. You know, I think there were there were probably a lot of things at play here. But it's definitely an odd picture to undertake shortly after, you know, the suicide of your eldest child. So this is like, this is a really interesting story, I think, for a Catholic to pursue, especially with the kind of zeal that he brought to the production. Peck was very excited about making this movie. And among the film's notable detractors were the Vatican and the U.S. Catholic Conference, who called it one of the most distasteful ever put out by a major studio and a slick, expensively mounted, essentially trashy horror show displaying appalling ignorance of all that pertains to Catholicism. It's also hard because, like, Greg was bros with the Pope, you know, which is another, like, weird Greg fact. Like, he met the Pope, and the Pope was like, Gregory Peck, you are one of our most... This is my John Paul II impression. You are one of our (laughs) most beloved film actors. I don't think that's what John Paul II sounded like, but he was Polish, so that's close enough. Was John Paul II even Pope at that time? 1978 until his death in 1972. It's close enough. Uh, yeah, Greg was bros in the Pope. So I can imagine kind of the Vatican radio station being like, this movie completely misinterprets all of Catholicism and is made by, you know, infidels. Probably might have hurt a little bit inside, but also he was making a lot of money. So maybe it didn't hurt that much. The U.S. Catholic Conference did not condemn it, though. They gave it a B, which is kind of like a D and condemned, condemned as an F. Uh, Deep Red got an F in the same issue of the conference's film and broadcasting review. So the omen's bad, but not as bad as Deep Red. Yeah, well, because it doesn't actually use real Catholic dogma. Yeah, they were like mad that it like mischaracterized like the fact that it's like, oh, it's from the Book of Revelations, which like the layman probably doesn't realize like is not really the Book of Revelation. You know, it's 
Mm. I, I see the opposition. Yeah, but I but... mean, whatever. Who cares what the Catholics say? It made Greg happy and it gave him a reason to continue getting up in the morning. And that's fine. So good for him and good for the omen. So I debated what note to close on, but I think one interview from the summer of 1976 says it best. Prodded by the LA Times' Greg Kilday about whether they had always believed the omen would be a success, Richard Donner said, We were concerned that an audience might not expect Greg Peck raising a knife to kill a child, but we figured if we did our job right, the audience would be involved. At which point, Harvey Bernhard interrupted and got right at the heart of the omen's legacy. When we came out of the first preview, he said, the audience was so shaken, it was like the Gettysburg Address. And to me, that perfectly sums up the appeal of the omen, <laughs> because it is like the Gettysburg Address. He said they were so effectively so, so shell-shocked that they didn't know whether it was good or bad or what was going to happen next, which is just like the Civil War. So really, we're forming like a big, beautiful circle here. Time is a flat circle, just like the Earth. But you kind of you want that for a movie, though, I think, at the end of the day. If it's a movie called The Omen. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it really was an omen. It was an omen that someday Jared Kushner would be born. Someone shave his head. When was Jared Kushner born? He was born in 1981. 1981 is when The Omen 3 came out. The one with Sam Neill. So check that. Anyway, that's The Omen. Uh, I like the movie. Not as good as The Omen 2. I don't believe in the curse. And um, I'm excited to see the movie where Tony Curtis talks about how he's going to destroy your balls or whatever happens there. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll just say this. I like The Omen. I think it's I think it's better than a lot of contemporary horror. I think it has some of the coolest death sequences um, or the most impactful death sequences. I mean, some of them are a bit over the top for the rest of the movie, but I think that as a feat of special effects and choreography. I think they're really cool. You still hear people talking about the maid killing herself as being, you know, something so shocking. And I think that they, they remain fresh to this day. And I think that's cool. Um, but yes, the second one is definitely, I mean, how can you top it? You can't. You can't. You simply cannot. What, who you got in there? William Holden, you got Sylvia Sidney in there for like five minutes um, you got Lee Grant. You got Luez. You just can't beat it. It's a it's a tour so, de force. Uh, definitely, if you haven't seen The Omen 2, watch The Omen 2. The Omen 2 is like the original Poseidon Adventure, and then the original Omen <laughs> is like beyond the Poseidon Adventure, or whatever the hell it's called. You know, s start with number two. Too fast, too Poseidon. So, Amelia, how many excellent David Warner shag haircuts looking like Jane Fonda but a lesbian, would you give this movie out of 10? I would give this 7 out of 10. That sounds about fair. 7 out of 10 lesbians. Tiff, mm -hmm. how many murderous babies would you give this out of 10? I think I'd agree with you. I'd give it a 7. It's a movie that I've always loved mainly because I think it has some of the most kick-ass deaths in film. But then I saw The Omen 2 and realized <laughs> that so there was light. a much better death. Um, but yeah, I mean, Candace, you've made me think a lot more about the context in which it was made. And of the three that we've covered, it's probably my third ranking, but it's a good movie that I enjoy. Um, Candace, how many carousels not stopping as the maid <laughs> hangs herself out of 10 would you give The Omen? I, I think I think I'd give it a seven. I would give it an eight if we actually got to see the baboons kill someone. But, you know, no clowns were harmed in the making of this film. And that's what really counts. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of What's in the Basket. We have social media. It's uh, 
Basket Pod on Twitter. And, at Basket Pod and, on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> yes. And uh, we have a blog. The show notes will be linked in the episode description. Um, I'm going to be linking the Westinghouse ad that Richard Donner directed featuring the cast of I Love Lucy. It's excruciating. And, well, that's the episode. Um, I will just say, <laughs> please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Uh, tell us what you thought. Love to hear from you. And um, congratulations, President, insert name here. <laughs> yeah, I completely forgot about it. I was going to say vote, but it's too late. So I hope you voted. If you didn't, then, you know, you're part of the problem. So. <laughs> <laughs> you should have a system like gonna... ours, where you have to vote. Yeah, even if you're just going to write in Kanye, do something. You know, people died for your right to vote. A lot of people in the United States don't have the, They've been stripped of their right to vote. So yeah. be thankful. It be is grateful. a fundamental right. Vote. So vote. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. 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 The idea of making, because Greg, we'll get into this later, kind of thought the whole idea was, who the hell, is that Penny? Yes, my brother. Hi, Penny. Fuck. (laughs) Oh, my God. She's excited. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I thought she was done. She's doing a great job protecting protecting the house isn't she lulu did that to my mom earlier and then the door opened and i was like yeah you look like a stupid fucking idiot that's mom (laughs) she's a dog she can't see through people oh i mean don't get me started on the art world i won't i won't get you started on the art world don't get me started (laughs) i won't i won't i have no intention of doing so um, cause I know you'll just explode. And then what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do in this podcast without you? We'd have to get Siri to read all of your contributions robotically. We'll just have, we'll feed her, um, a bunch of your Skype messages and then she can kind of just an Amelia bot with, with Siri's Australian accent. I mean, I'm a recording right now. You are? That's great, Candace. <laughs> <laughs>